Well, it, um, it all started out pretty sweet. Genesis 2-7. God made Adam out of the dust of the ground, and uh, that dust was the loving work of his creation. Our first parents were happy. They were happy in God. They were happy in their work, and they were <coughs> happy with one another. But last Lord's Day uh, morning, we looked at the miserable business of the fall, <clears throat> where everything changes for Adam and Eve. And um, as they turn from God and begin to live lives of selfish independence, the dust and ashes now represent um, the futility of fallen life. And God is compelled to bring uh, covenant sanctions, uh, a judgment uh, against his covenant breakers, Adam and Eve. He says to them, to us, by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. Um, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. But even as we saw, even in the fall, we were able to uh, look at God's gracious hand and promise of redemption to come. Well, this morning we turn now to the New Testament and look more closely at that gracious redemption that God and what, what God did to save us from this uh, dust, uh, death, and, and dust of sin. Um, and it's all very basic gospel. Uh, this is all about grace, but it's very important to hear it. Uh, over and over, because we keep it in the front of our minds in this short life, because grace is a curiously slippery thing uh, in the hearts even of God's people. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the third chapter of the Gospel of John. John uh, chapter 3 and follow, as long as I read what I trust for most of you, at least there's some Pretty familiar verses. I will begin reading um, from um, the first verse and uh, we'll continue through uh, the 15th. Uh, the Gospel of John, the Word of God found um, in John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of, of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but 
you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe them, how can you believe it? Um, if I tell you uh, heavenly things. No one has ascended into heaven except he who uh, descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. <clears throat> well, Nicodemus was... Um, was an important visitor. Uh, John identifies him as a Pharisee. That makes him a, a religious man, a teacher, a, an educated man, and not uh, so much directly in the Old Testament scriptures, but more at that time, particularly uh, in the writings and the commentaries of the great and well-regarded rabbinical teachers. In addition, we discover elsewhere <clears throat> that he was a member of the Jewish ruling consul, the Sanhedrin. So we may regard this uh, uh, man as a person of considerable renown and authority and respectability, perhaps even wealth. Now, why Jesus chose to make note of the fact that Nicodemus uh, visits Jesus as night at night has always been a, a matter of debate. Was it because he was ashamed of being seen visiting some someone his pharisaical friends regarded as a renegade rabbi in the light of day? Or was it because he, he felt he might have a better chance of speaking with Jesus alone at night? But the big question is why he came at all. What was his interest and purpose in speaking with the Lord Jesus? He opens the conversation with some sort of complimentary remarks uh, about Jesus being a teacher sent from God. But Jesus brushes it aside and gets straight to the point. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, the text says that Jesus answered him. But in point of fact, Nicodemus had, had really not even raised any question to be answered at that point. Uh, um, but Jesus answered him anyway, because our, our Lord knew his heart, knew his soul, knew that he did have a question, but whether he was completely conscious or whether he had really worked it all out in his mind or not, the question was the same question that the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 asked when he visited Jesus and, and said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Maybe you remember that. Well, deep in his heart, that was Nicodemus' question, too. But Jesus' answer was not at all what Nicodemus expected. Um, our Lord didn't give him 
just some more rules or some more rituals to perform or uh, some words that he might uh, recite to himself, which is doubtless what he might have expected. But rather, Jesus tells this, this learned uh, religious leader that if he is to attain the kingdom of God, he needs a radical change of heart. And, and in fact, nothing short of a life-changing, supernatural work of grace would accommodate him or anyone for the kingdom. Uh, when Nicodemus seems sort of confused by this, uh, <clears throat> Jesus, um, you know, rebukes him. Uh, he says, you're a teacher of Israel? You're a Pharisee? You're a, a ruler of the Jews and you don't understand this? I mean, had Nicodemus no understanding or no knowledge of the Old Testament prophets who repeatedly warned um, Israel of empty pharisaical rituals, warned them against a religion of mere appearances, uh, pleading with them to circumcise their hearts and not just their flesh. Um, had this teacher of Israel uh, never read anything of Ezekiel who promises that God would take away their, their heart of flesh and give them a, a, a heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh? Uh, that's what Nicodemus needed. He needed a heart operation, a radical makeover, a, a work of supernatural power in his life to make a new spiritual man of him. But all that appears to totally elude him. Um, why would any of that apply to him? I mean, he's a religious man. He, he's an Orthodox Presbyterian. He's, he's a religious sort of fellow. He, he knows what he's talking about. He has his theology down. And um, he's a Pharisee. Why would, why would he need to know this? And, and yet, let's take notice that while he began pretty poorly and doesn't look too good to us in these verses, um, he, uh, this man, Nicodemus, appears to have ended pretty well. Um, for later in the Gospels, in uh, John 7, 51, we read of him actually defending uh, uh, Jesus, uh, in front of the entire Jewish council, demanding that he get a complete hearing uh, uh, before his uh, condemnation. And in John 19, uh, we discover him assisting Joseph of Arimathea with the tender burial of, of uh, Jesus' body uh, when even his own apostles had deserted him. Well, <clears throat> So it seems that in the end, Nicodemus may have been converted, may have got that second birth after all. And that's a very hopeful thing for us to read, isn't it? Started out badly, ended well. Uh, Bishop Ryle observes, it's not those who make the most flaming profession of faith at first, but those who endure the longest and prove the most steadfast. Judas Iscariot was an apostle when Nicodemus was just groping his way uh, uh, to fully into, into the, the light. Um, yet afterward, when Nicodemus was boldly helping to bury uh, his, uh, his crucified Savior, Judas had already betrayed him and hanged himself. This is a fact that ought not be forgotten. Or, as my wife likes to remind me, it's not how you begin. And how you end that counts. Well, back to our text. <clears throat> why did um, 
Why did Jesus tell Nicodemus Nicodemus he needed to be born again? Why was this? Why was his strict Pharisaical ritualism so inadequate? Because, in a word, um, the man was dead. He was dead. He he needed to be born again because. All of that ritual and all of that elaborate rule-keeping was just not enough to save him. Uh, that is, in fact, the natural spiritual condition, however, of, of every one of us, just as it is with that man. Um, that's the result of our sin. It's the wages of sin. We're spiritually dead. The, the spiritual element within us, within our souls, is dead to God, dead to spiritual reality dead to truth. We're physically alive, but we're spiritually dead. Do you get it? There's two parts to people, and we see the physical part. Sometimes we even see a person maybe sort of spiritually dead. There's something missing. And people sometimes even feel it. Sometimes people think, you know, I think there's something missing in my life. And, and they may go about to try to do something about that. It might be as crude as drugs or alcohol or something like that, or it may be more subtle trying to somehow fill that empty spot. Well, their spirits are dead. It's a result of Adam's sin. On the day you eat of it, warned the Lord God, you will surely die. And Adam and Eve did die. They spiritually died right at that moment. And we are uh, infected by that sin. We all share the same judgment. And the Apostle Paul understood this very clearly. In writing to the Ephesians, he says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you uh, used to once walk when you followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among the sons of disobedience. Brothers, sisters, this is a serious condition that we share with Nicodemus. It's a terminal condition. It's a condition that makes us right for eternal judgment before the day of the Lord of our physical death. Um, truly, if you if you stand before the Lord God, as surely every one of us will, and have nothing more than the first birth, and you are still a spiritually dead, an unsaved man, a woman, or a young person, there is no help for you at all forever. If, if you have nothing more, than your own religion or your own religious philosophy or your own good opinion or your, or your own fine opinion of yourself or your own good works. If you appear before the Lord God on that day without Jesus, without that new birth, that second birth that Jesus is speaking of, you are utterly lost. Understand, Nicodemus is not presenting to us also, it's not presented to us rather also, it's simply some sort of unfortunate man. Who, who through, through no fault of his own, just um, somehow missed the, the, the whole thing and, and, and just needed us a little healing hand. Uh, none of us can see ourselves in that mistaken light. We are dead in our own sin, let alone uh, the legacy or infection of the sin of Adam. That was bad enough by itself, but our own deliberate rebellion against God are willfully breaking his holy law every day. 
our pride and unbelief and anger, our rejection of the rule of God over our lives, our idolatrous pushing God off the throne, off the throne, and enthroning ourselves in his place. Rocky! <laughs> What's this? You know, it angers God. It angers God, rightly so. Um, that's who we are, though. We're the sons and daughters of of, of wrath, the sons and daughters of Adam, infected with the sin to which we we add our own touch every day, every hour. In other words, we're not talking this morning about some sort of small religious problem that we have with God that can be easily fixed or remedied ourselves, reconciling us to God, making ourselves fit for heaven. We are all far, far too gone for that. We have much, much too high opinion of ourselves and much too low opinion of God. And uh, we, uh, we, we're far too gone. We're dead. Be dead. Dead people don't get up. Dead people don't say yes to Jesus. Dead people are dead. Utterly helpless. Hellbound in a sinful state. That's what Jesus is teaching Saving ourselves is clearly not possible. This is one of the reasons Jesus is using this sort of peculiar figure of speech about being born again. Uh, we're, we're talking about what God must do for those who are lost and helpless sinners. We're talking about a desperate need for undeserved grace breaking into our lives and the lives of those who love our children and our friends. So, what I'm really speaking of in this text, um, and what we're learning here, is about the doctrine of regeneration. The doctrine of regeneration. Jesus describes this regeneration or second birth to Nicodemus using this figure or picture or illustration of the wind. He says, uh, verse 8, 3 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you, you don't know where it comes from or. or, or or where it's going. Uh, so it is, everyone is born of the Spirit. So the work of regeneration by which we're reborn is a mysterious, supernatural act of God's grace. It's not a work, it's an act of grace. It's something freely given. It's the business of the Holy Spirit to take dead men and women and quicken them and make them spiritually alive and revive their souls and give them an interest in the Lord Jesus Christ and apply to them the meritorious saving work of Christ. It, it's all very mysterious to irrational men. Here's a person who has no interest in God or religion or Christ at all and suddenly perhaps through some misfortune or tragedy or difficulty stops short in his life and, and like the prodigal son hears, really hears for the first time uh, the gospel and is and inexplicably begins to recognize that, that yeah, he is a, a sinner. But that's a word that he would never be interested in even using. Uh, and, and, and he takes it to heart. And he gets a heart of repentance and faith. He gets an interest in Jesus. It suddenly dawns on him, like it did the prodigal son, that this man has made a mess of his life and he needs to go home and throw himself on the mercy of his father. And, and how does that happen? How did he ever get there in the first place? 
Well, whatever outward means God uh, may have to use, it's always ultimately the gracious work of the Holy Spirit who drives home uh, or makes effectual um, the powerful redemptive work of Christ on the cross. Uh, regenerating that man, making him spiritually alive, giving him a spiritual interest and desire for Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul, in a letter to Timothy, says this in a lovely verse that you all ought to know. Paul says, He saved us, not because of righteous deeds we've done, but because of His mercy. He saved us by the washing of regeneration, or or renewal of the Holy Spirit, uh, which he poured out upon us generously through Christ Jesus, uh, our, our Lord. Well, the Westminster Catechism, now that's pretty clear, isn't it? He saved us not because of righteousness, but because of his mercy, by the washing of regeneration. The, the Catechism, the Westminster Catechism, asks how are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? How do we get all that good stuff that Christ did? Um, and how can we be saved? How can we move from, uh, from the dust of death to life? The answer, we're made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by the Holy Spirit. Those guys back there in the Westminster, they knew how to say things clearly, didn't they? Um, we're made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ. Uh, through the effectual application of us of, of it to us by His Holy Spirit. And what's the work? The Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. Say it again or differently is to effectually or powerfully call us to speak to our hearts, convincing us of our sin and misery, and enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills and enabling us. He does persuade and enable us to embrace Christ freely offered to us. In the gospel, that's regeneration. That's the second birth. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about in this text. So has God done that work in your life? Has He given you a lively interest in Christ? Has He caused you to to repent of your sin of proud unbelief and independence? Um, have you ever asked Jesus to save you? You've been born again. This idea, this requirement of the new birth is, is not something we just see here in this one text. It fills the Bible. Old Testament and New. Especially the New. But it's in the Old as well. The Apostle Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again through a living hope, uh, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, in in John's Gospel, he writes of this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves God is born of God. <clears throat> We've already heard the Apostle Paul reminds the Church of Ephesus uh, that uh, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together in Christ. To the Church of Corinth, he gave these memorable words, If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Um, that's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus about. That's what, that's what has to happen to each of us. But how does this come about? Um, 
from a human standpoint, we know God works sovereignly, but from a human standpoint, uh, how is a man born again? What means, we could say it this way, what means does God use? How does that happen? And the answer is, by means of faith. By means of faith. We have to ask God to give us uh, faith. Faith is the faith of the hands by which we reach out and grasp hold of Christ, freely offered to us uh, in uh, the gospel as our Savior. Listen again to what Jesus says in verse 14. As, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him, whoever has faith in him, um, uh, will have eternal life. Now, um, of course, this is a very interesting reference that we've already heard about and, and, and even sang about. Isaac Watts wrote that beautiful hymn. Um, uh, you know, reference to Jesus making something happen back in Exodus that we can read about in, in uh, Numbers of chapter 21. And we've read it, but, you know, I'm going to read it again. <laughs> um, because it's short and it's important. From Mount Hor, they set out on their way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden, and the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and spoke against God's minister, Moses. Why have you brought us um, up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Now, there's no food or water, and we loathe this worthless food, the man. Um, and, and, uh, and the Lord, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that uh, many people uh, of Israel died. And the Lord came, people came to Moses and said, We've sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray, that, uh, pray to the Lord to take away the serpents. So Moses prayed to the people. And the Lord said to uh, Moses, Make a fiery serpent. Set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look upon the bronze serpent and live. So, what would have compelled a hard-hearted uh, Israelite who, who now says he'd rather go back and work for Pharaoh again in slavery than, you know, move on to the promised land? Um, uh, what would make him uh, or her recognize their guilt and bankruptcy and turn asking God to um, to heal them. Um, well, he has this um, he has this, um, this this thing that he sets up in front of them. Um, but really, it's a matter of repentance and faith of recognizing their guilt and the bankruptcy they're in, and turning it from him, and asking God to have mercy on them. How does it work? It, it, it almost seems very superstitious when we look at it in this text, but. What was that bronze serpent? Well, you know, because we've sung about it. It's a picture. It's a. It's like an old stained glass window uh, that that you look at it and, and it it speaks to you, it, pointing to Jesus. Uh, and that's why it was effectual. That's that's why they were healed. It wasn't because there was some, you know, something sticking up in the air there. Uh, that uh, looks fiery when the, when the, when the sun hit it. Um, but rather, uh, they were looking, they were setting their eyes and, uh, uh, on, in faith uh, to God. 
Uh, Jesus, you know, one of my favorite quotes is, um, is from Martin Luther. Martin Luther said, uh, the Bible is the royal chariot in which Jesus always rides. Isn't that cool? The Bible is the royal, because Jesus is there throughout. And that was all about Jesus. How were they saved? Jesus wasn't alive. They were saved on faith, all right? On credit. <laughs> on credit for what Jesus would one day do. Uh, and, and so it was that same, that same thing. Uh, the glorious Savior. Um, I don't mind putting the question again. Has he drawn you to himself? Have you found this new birth? Have you been regenerated? Have you been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life in, uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. You and I must hear the gospel Call, the call of God and the gospel to turn from our proud independence and lay hands on Christ and get his salvation by turning our eyes upon Jesus. But now, maybe you, you don't have any faith. Maybe, maybe there's someone here who's honest with themselves uh, and saying to themselves, well, you know, I think maybe I, I do need this new birth. I think maybe I do need to trust Christ and what he did for me. And, and I think maybe I am dead in my sin, but, but uh, I, I, I don't know how to do this. I, I can't. It seems too spiritual. It seems religious. It seems sort of ethereal. And, you know, how do you do it? It's, it's supernatural. I'm not a supernatural. I'm a rational person. How can I get this faith? Um, I, I don't believe any of this. Oh, well, that's a good start. <laughs> because it means you know you're bankrupt. And you know you have no credit. You can't even make a down payment to God. It's out of reach for you. You are so gone. You can't even believe in Jesus. That's exactly where God wants you. Because you have only two choices. You can just live on that way. Or you can humble yourself and cave in and ask Jesus for the free gift of life. Uh, you can say to Jesus, help me, Lord. I am so lost in sin. I can't even believe the truth when it's in front of my face. Please save me. Give me faith. Change me. Awaken my dead heart and save me. That's, that's a prayer that Jesus and God the Holy Spirit simply can't resist. So, this is how I think I need to end. I want to go back to that bronze servant, a serpent rather, and uh, he's a serpent, but he was a serpent, in uh, Numbers 21. Um, do you know that, that that later became a snare uh, to, to Israel? It, it did. Uh, we read, and it's recorded in 2 Kings 18, that the godly king Hezekiah, um, seeking to purify the land. Things had really sunk to a low point at that time. And he was seeking to purify the land and um, of idols and that were leading people astray. And, and I quote, he removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asherah pole. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made 
For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Negushtan, which means an unclean thing. Now, why do I read that? I read it because it's a reminder that we, that, that people, especially religiously oriented people, can make an idol out of absolutely anything. Israel made an idol out of that bronze snake, which was to serve as nothing more than a reminder of them of their need to look and repent and faith to God. But we learn here that it become a snare to Israel. That it become they began to treat it as an idol. That it, they were burning incense to it. It had taken on a life of its own, uh, a replacement for God. That's what idols are. Idols are a replacement for God, a cheap replacement uh, for uh, for God. Idols corrupt faith. And they make religion easy. You know, it's easy if you just go, you know, bow your head, burn something, you know, and, and, and then walk away and say, oh, I feel pretty good now, you know. Well, that's, that's, that's not what we see in Scripture at all. Uh, crosses, statues, pictures, representative symbols don't change anyone's heart. They don't get anyone to heaven. Only Jesus can do that. It's the work of the Spirit. 2 Kings 18 reminds us precisely of what Jesus was confronting Nicodemus about in this text. That religion and that the rituals of religion, regardless of how elaborate or how simple they might be, can end up leading us away from faith in Christ. They may start start out representing Christ as the bronze servant did in Numbers 21, but the human heart um, is so easily corrupted, so easily corrupts, and, 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 and things take on a life of their own, and ere long, there we are, and we've actually replaced uh, Jesus. Um, I think they can especially be a snare, uh, a great snare for anyone who's grown up in the church and knows all the rules and knows all their theology and has memorized some of the confession and catechism. But they forget uh, that they're saved by grace and not by works, not, uh, uh, not by our performance or our church attendance. Grace is very slippery in our hearts. Or as I sometimes put it this way, that, uh, that grace just doesn't load up on our computers. It doesn't load. Uh, it works. That that loads lickety split. Uh, we we get that. You know that's the way it is. Of course, you you pay good things and you get that's in the head. And, and, uh, and we understand that. But grace, grace is hard to understand. It just doesn't load easily, and we forget it so easily. So we need to hear sermons like this over and over again. Why does he come and keep preaching? And we know how about this stuff. Well, yeah, I do too, but but we just need to hear it. Um, without God's saving grace, we're all as good as dead. Really, we are dead. dead. Nothing more than dust and ashes. We all must be born again. Jesus said so. If you still don't catch this or understand what needs to be done, please speak with me or with Reverend Graham or one of the elders after the service. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah. 
for the sake of your name. Let's pray. Lord our God, we rejoice in this simple gospel that we need to hear. Um, Lord, we are um, we are not a holy people. We we even as believers so easily forget, so easily take up idols into our hearts. And we're thankful for that great sovereign work that you performed for us, taking our sin, giving us our righteousness. And we thank you for the work of the Spirit in applying that to our hearts. We thank you for that message, and we bless you for it. We pray your blessing upon each one here this day. Open our ears to hear your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.